Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 1 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part story. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Reginald Cray, Prisoner Number 058111 Extract from Prison File Type of Report Redacted His general behaviour is good, and he appears to be able to cope with prison life in general. He continues to play a supportive role to his brother, and although it is not easy to gauge his innermost thoughts, there are hints that he is growing tired of the support he needs to give his twin brother. Just as his brother's demeanour may have improved, Reginald has deteriorated, and at times he looks really depressed and fed up with his brother's activities. As with his brother, Various members of the family visit at regular intervals, and he seems to get much support from the visits he receives. He seems content to plod along in the present setting, and attracts the company of many inmates because of his notoriety. His brother prefers this aspect of Parkhurst life, whereas Reginald Cray would prefer to shake off this notorious reputation and settle down to serving his sentence quietly. Author redacted, July 20th, 1976. Ronald Cray, Prisoner Number 058110, Extract from a Report on Prison Conduct I think it is true to say that Ronald Cray remains very dependent on his twin, and indeed upon staff, especially medical, for his emotional survival. He tends to get into more, usually minor, trouble than his brother. Both Crays have progressed better than one would have anticipated, 
it is clear that they still have some influence over their peers and over certain erstwhile contacts outside. Within the prison setting, of course, there are many who would bask in their reflected glory and assist in perpetrating the Cray legend. On the whole, both are outwardly cooperative, even pleasant and courteous to most staff. They have both worked in Sea Wing toy shop and on cleaners, Reginald more industriously, but neither being very keen to maximise their efforts. Neither has ever shown any particular feeling about their offences, and obviously both remain criminally accultured and are unlikely to change in this respect. It is difficult to estimate the regard still held for them outside, but I suspect it to be greater than we think. Author Redacted, July 21st, 1976 From their East End beginnings, the Cray Twins would go on to run one of the most powerful and feared criminal organisations in London. Their influence wouldn't only be felt by the nightclubs and casinos of the capital, but also some of the highest tiers of government. They were untouchable, and the Crays remain a much-remembered part of 60s culture, like the celebrity icons that filled their establishments. This is the story of Reggie and Ronnie Cray. The Cray family had little in the way of money, and the impending arrival of two new children no doubt placed a strain on the family but their mother Violet Anne Lee Cray was over the moon with the birth of her twin sons. Life in the East End of London was not without its problems. Living conditions were cramped and money was scarce. Violet had been raised in a strict household and when she eloped to marry the boy's father Charles, she was disowned by a family. After a difficult upbringing, Violet wanted to raise her children in a loving environment. The twins had an older brother, Charlie, born in July 1927. Violet doted on her children, being a dominant figure in their lives. Reggie and Ronnie's parents went through an extraordinarily difficult period towards the end of the 1920s when they had a daughter, but she died when she was only a baby. During the evening of October 24, 1933, Reginald was the first of the Cray twins to be born, and his brother Ronald followed ten minutes later. It wasn't until the arrival of the twins that Violet reconnected with her family and the boy's grandfather took a real shine to his new grandsons. The twins were showered with love and affection, especially from their auntie Rose. However, the boy's father, Charles David Cray, was absent from the family home throughout their younger years. He sparingly contributed to their upbringing as he was often on the run from the police. He made his living buying and selling jewellery and clothing and by all accounts earned good money, setting the family slightly apart from the poverty that surrounded them. The children were raised in Hoxton, and it was one of Britain's most impoverished areas, with few employment opportunities and basic living conditions. As they grew from babies into young boys, it was quite clear the identical twins had distinct differences. Ronnie would often scream and shout to get attention, but his brother found communication easier and was far more outgoing. The twins competed for their mother's attention, with each often trying to outdo the other with grand displays of affection, but they were always equal in their mother's eyes. Reggie was considered the more intelligent of the two, and could often draw his brother into episodes of misbehaviour. That said, they both enjoyed causing trouble. Though the twins kept a watchful eye on one another, 
They were each other's worst enemy and fiercest protector. As the breakout of World War II loomed in 1938, Violet wanted to be closer to her own family, so the Crays packed their things and moved less than a mile away to Valance Road in Bethnal Green. When the twins were six, their father Charles had been called up for military service, but unwilling to leave to go to war, preferring to stay home to run his various business ventures, he disappeared. The situation wasn't all that uncommon, as the area where they lived was known locally as Deserters Corner due to the number of men who chose not to answer their draft papers. Now and again the twins' father would return and was almost captured on two occasions before he found a suitable hiding place under a table or in a cupboard. The twins often saw their father's attempts to outwit the law and frequently pointed officers searching for him in the wrong direction. When Reggie was eight years old, he saw the extreme lengths people go to to protect their livelihood. Reggie had a friend who helped pack loaves of bread for a delivery driver. One day when the driver was away from the vehicle, the two boys started messing about, pretending to drive the van they were sitting in. Reggie watched on as his young friend put the keys in the ignition and the vehicle rolled backwards, hitting an air raid shelter behind them. The boys were unaware that another young boy was standing behind the van. He was killed instantly. When the driver returned to the horrific scene, he told Reggie and his friend to keep their mouths shut as he might lose his job. The boy's death was recorded as an accident, and Reggie would later learn that the boy who was killed had a twin sister. As it was ruled an accident, the boy's family never got any compensation. Of all the terrible things that Reggie Cray recalled doing in his life, he stated that it was his saddest memory of all. The Cray family briefly moved to a farm in Suffolk to get away from the devastation of the Blitz, but Violet missed the East End so much, the family decided to move back. Playing in the dust and rubble of the bomb sites with Ronnie's Alsatian dog Frieda, the boys made a name for themselves as they were not afraid to get into a fight with other children. After they left Daniel Street School at 15, they briefly went on to work at Billingsgate Fish Market. Ronnie collected the discarded fish boxes and Reggie worked as a trainee salesman. Reggie enjoyed the company of others, but Ronnie was more socially awkward, preferring to keep himself to himself. In their spare time, they had taken up boxing, inspired by Ronnie and Reggie's maternal grandfather, James Lee. Known as the Southpaw Cannonball due to the sheer power of his left-handed punch, he would frequently be seen practicing punching a mattress in the garden or bare-knuckle boxing in Victoria Park. After joining the Navy during the war, their older brother Charlie was also making a name for himself on the Navy boxing circuit and would often return to teach his younger brothers the ropes, further encouraging their love of the sport. The twins hung a canvas bag from the ceiling in one of their bedrooms and begun practicing. They had already been in a boxing ring. A fight was set up at a fun fair in which the boys fought with each other. It lasted three rounds and they earned half a crown. A local coach who was in attendance spotted them and believed they had potential to go professional, so decided to train them. The twins gave up cigarettes and alcohol and undertook a rigorous training regime at Repton Boxing Club, a business that still stands to this day. The hard work was paying off, as Reggie won the London Schoolboys Boxing Championship and won seven of his professional fights. What Ronnie lacked in technique, he made up for in sheer brute force. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The twins didn't know how to keep the fighting in the ring. They'd been in trouble with the law in the past, but in the early 1950s, after being spotted attacking another 16-year-old in Hackney, they were arrested. They were remanded in custody and faced a trial at the Old Bailey. With the prospect of a prison sentence hanging over their heads, the twins used intimidation to silence both the witness and the victim. The case was eventually dropped due to lack of evidence, and the twins learnt that by creating fear, they could get what they wanted but it wasn't long until the law caught up with them. During the summer of that year, both Ronnie and Reggie assaulted the same policeman on the same afternoon only a few hours apart. While standing outside a cafe on Bethnal Green, Ronnie was pushed in the back by a policeman telling him and his friends to move along. Unhappy with being shoved, Ronnie turned around and punched the officer square in the jaw, knocking the man off his feet before running away. It wouldn't be long until Ronnie was caught and taken into police custody. Reggie felt that he had somehow let his brother down, so went searching for the officer. After a few hours of searching the same street where the officer had initially been struck, he spotted the policeman and tapped him on the shoulder. As the officer turned around, Reggie also punched him in the face. The Cray twins appeared before magistrates to plead their case, and along with the help of a local priest who begged for forgiveness, the teenagers were only given probation. On March 2nd, 1952, Ronald and Reginald were called up for national service. While they hated routine and anyone in a uniform, they wanted to be physical training instructors with the Royal Fusiliers, and this would provide the exercise regime needed to improve their boxing careers. On the first day, and only a few hours in, 
They both asked for a position as a physical training instructor, but their supervisor denied the request. Unimpressed with the corporal's response, they decided they'd had enough and walked towards the door. They were asked where they were going and the corporal grabbed Ronnie's arm. He didn't like anyone putting their hands on him, so Ronnie punched his superior in the mouth. The twins left and went to their mother's house. The army arrived on their doorstep shortly after to collect them. Although Ronnie was responsible for the assault, they blamed each other, hoping that the corporal wouldn't be able to tell the two apart and they both might walk free. This was a trick they had successfully applied when they were younger. However, rather than the assault charges being dropped, as no one could prove who did it exactly, it was agreed to put both of them in the guardroom in the Tower of London. While there, the twins met a young man called Dickie Morgan, and they all decided to make a run for it when their sentence was up. As soon as they were let out the door, the three fled to Dickie Morgan's home, close to the Docklands in London. The twins decided to abandon boxing altogether in favour of a life of crime, as many boxing promoters wouldn't book them due to their criminal record. They were still being pursued by the army, who eventually caught up with them, and the twins would go on to serve time in prison for assault. Guards were subjected to taunts and tantrums, and Reggie and Ronnie dumped the contents of bins and latrine buckets over the heads of prison officials while their backs were turned. While incarcerated, the twins formed friendships with fellow criminals. When they were released, they were dishonorably discharged from the army. They eventually found work as security guards in an old converted cinema that was operating as a billiard hall called the Regal in Mile End. When the manager resigned, Reggie and Ronnie saw their chance. Paying only £5 a week in rent, the twins redecorated the hall and added over a dozen new snooker tables. At the time, if you ran a business in the East End, you'd often find that you'd be required to pay some form of protection money to a local gang, who explained they were offering a service to protect your business from the other rival gangs in the area. In truth, the business was mostly only in danger from the gang offering the service. If the owner refused, they would undoubtedly find their property burgled or damaged as a warning. They would have to pay up if they didn't want it to happen again. A Maltese gang entered the Regal, expecting to get what they believed they were owed for providing protection to the club. But with the twins, they got more than they bargained for, as rather than giving up some of their takings, Ronnie took a knife and stabbed the gang leader through his hand, pinning him to a billiards table. This event inspired them to start their own protection racket, as they had easily fended off the other gangs in the area. Bookies, cafes, gambling halls and pubs were all subjected to their protection fee. Not only did they have the income from the Regal, they now had a large inflow of cash from all the protection rackets they were running. However, if they wanted to break out of the confines of the East End and make it big in the criminal underworld, they would need to get a foothold in the West End of London. During 1955, after a fight between two crime bosses, one of them needed protection and the Cray twins were able to offer their services. Jack Comer, otherwise known as Jack Spot, ran a large amount of the criminal activity in London with another man called Billy Hill. The pair called themselves the kings of the underworld, but after the two fell out and Jack Spot was severely injured after having his face slashed, he needed some additional muscle as he couldn't trust some of his own gang members. This is where the craze flourished, 
and learnt a lot from Jack Spot during their time working together. Eventually, Jack Spot became tired of the trouble the twins caused him. He retired from a life of crime, leaving an opening waiting to be filled by the next gang looking to run the criminal activity across both the east and west end of London. Around this period was the first time Ronnie Cray shot someone. A car dealer that the Crays were meant to be protecting had a visit from a disgruntled Docklands worker who had purchased a faulty car. Demanding his money back, the incensed buyer was refused and promptly told the car dealer that he would be returning the next day with his friends to retrieve the funds he was owed. As soon as he left, Ronnie was informed about the visit. When the dock worker returned on his own the next day, Ronnie was waiting for him and shot the man in the leg. When Reggie found out, he did his best to get his brother out of trouble by pretending to be Ronnie. After police turned up at Valence Road, asking for him to attend an identification parade, Reggie went along willingly. He was identified by the victim as the shooter, but Reggie had a cast-iron alibi for the time he was meant to have shot the man. No one was prosecuted, but Reggie had a few choice words with his brother, explaining the risks he was taking by shooting someone. In Ronnie's eyes, the risk he took paid off, as few criminals in London were prepared to use a firearm at that time, and as word travels fast in the capital, it was confirmed to all those who operated in the criminal underworld that the twins were not to be messed with. During the summer of 1956, the twins were asked to help stamp out some trouble in the Stragglers nightclub in the West End. The owner was desperate to stop the persistent fighting that seemed to plague the club. With the problem dealt with, the following few years were extremely prosperous for Reggie Cray and the gang he employed. They referred to themselves as The Firm. It included Reggie and Ronnie Cray, their cousin Ronnie Hart, Ian Barry, Albert Donoghue, Jack Dixon and brothers Tony and Chris Lambriano. This gang of thieves, murderers and hangers-on were desperate to make a name for themselves and while Reggie was climbing the criminal ladder, the same couldn't be said for Ronnie. He was arrested for assault in November 1956. The twins had a dispute with another gang in the area and when Ronnie and his followers turned up at a pub where the rival gang often met, a violent outbreak ensued and a man was almost stabbed to death. Ronnie was sentenced to three years for grievous bodily harm along with firearm possession and was sent to Wandsworth, a Category B prison. On the outside, Reggie's business ventures, both legitimate and not so legitimate, went from strength to strength as now he was outside his brother's influence. He started protecting upper-class illegal gambling parties in Mayfair and Belgravia and opened the Double R on Bow Road. For a time, it was seen as the place to be in the East End. Ronnie would often hand out swift and violent retribution if the twins had been slighted, but as he was temporarily out of the picture, business was on the up. Ronnie was well behaved in prison and welcomed visits from his friends and family, but this would be the very thing that would get him transferred to Camp Hill Prison on the Isle of Wight. While this was a Category C prison, and fewer restrictions were placed on his movements, Ronnie's mental state began to deteriorate quickly. At the end of 1957, Ronnie received news that his auntie Rose had passed away from leukemia and he didn't take the news well as he had to be put in a straitjacket. 
He was eventually certified and transferred to Longgrove Hospital in Surrey. Whilst there, Ronnie was sure one of his fellow patients was a dog and he would often converse with the radiator. But now with the proper treatment, Ronnie's mental health slowly began to improve. Unfortunately, security at the hospital was lax and Ronnie would be allowed visitors every Sunday, which often included his brother Reggie. Well aware that his brother was now registered as insane and Ronnie would only be released when authorities deemed him competent, Reggie felt it was his responsibility to get his brother out. It wouldn't take heavy-duty equipment to tunnel under the hospital walls, but a simple scheme that would involve Ronnie walking straight out the front door. Reggie visited Ronnie one Sunday, as he often would do, and while the guard was distracted, the pair switched clothes in the bathroom, and Ronnie casually made his way to the exit, and no one suspected a thing until Reggie went to leave. As Reggie had his identification, there was little hospital staff could do. While his brother was hauled up in a caravan in Suffolk, Reggie knew that if Ronnie was away long enough, his brother would have to be reassessed upon his return. Ronnie eventually handed himself in and was later diagnosed fit to finish his prison sentence at Wandsworth. The psychiatrist was lightly paid off by Reggie. Ronnie was released from prison in the spring of 1958. Reggie now had to manage not only the twins' business interests but also Ronnie's bloodlust and ever more erratic demands. Ronnie's incarceration had changed him and not for the better. In February 1960, Reggie would also have to serve time after he, Ronnie and an associate, Daniel Shea, went to collect some protection money from a shop on Finchley Road called Swiss Travel Goods. Their visit didn't go entirely to plan as the owner had informed the police who were hiding in the back room and overheard the demand for £100. After the exchange, both Daniel Shea and Reggie Cray were arrested. Reggie was sentenced to 18 months and Daniel Shea was sentenced to three years. Although Ronnie was present, he was never prosecuted. In spite of the violence that often followed them, the twins would undertake one of their most profitable business ventures, the purchase of Esmeralda's barn. Located in Knightsbridge, the casino was extremely lucrative and owned by Stéphane de Fay. Reggie was out on bail pending a review of his case, so after a visit from the twins and their financial advisor, the owner agreed to sell the business in the autumn of 1960. With the threat of violence looming from two brothers who had made a name for themselves through intimidation, it wasn't a decision that Stéphane de Fay pondered for long. The place could practically run itself, it had a good bar, was well respected and the staff were well trained. With Esmeralda's barn now under their management, due to the legalisation of gambling in 1961, the twins and their associates were set for a very fruitful period in their lives. They brought Lord Effingham onto the board of directors, who would often greet each guest as they came in. Reggie and Ronnie believed having an earl from a distinguished lineage would legitimise the casino with the upper class. In between opening or buying into two more nightclubs, the Kentucky and the Cambridge Room, the twins' nightclubs were being attended by the rich and famous upper class, who had little knowledge of their less-than-legitimate methods. A premiere for the film Sparrows Can't Sing was held on Mile End Road during February 1963, and the after-show party was held at both the Kentucky and Esmeralda's Barn, with some scenes from the film even being shot at the Kentucky. Things couldn't be better for Reggie and Ronnie, now with a legal means to make money, 
but the twins couldn't leave their violent past behind. They were still committing armed robbery, arson, fraud and running protection rackets. The twins' business manager was Leslie Payne. Nicknamed Payne the Brain, he worked as a frontman and financial fixer for Reggie and Ronnie. He lived in Dulwich along with his wife and two children and was an unlikely fit for the firm given his respectable appearance. The twins were not only making £1,600 a week from the gaming tables, they were also demanding protection money from the other casinos and clubs in the area, which saw them making anywhere up to £150 from each establishment. Frequently photographed with celebrities who flocked in droves to their clubs and casinos, Reggie and Ronnie became celebrities in their own right, and were often splashed across the front pages of the UK tabloids. The twins also made large donations to a number of hospitals and youth clubs throughout the East End, well aware of the publicity their generosity would bring them. Though they couldn't entirely escape their criminal background, brushing shoulders with celebrities and making donations to places in need often softened the public's perception of them. They had exceeded even their wildest expectations, however they were still haunted by their East End beginnings and couldn't fully capitalise on most of their business ventures. While threats of violence, and often the act itself, had gotten them where they were, it didn't help them stay there. Ronnie began to lend money to gamblers who couldn't pay back their debts. In one terrifying incident, one gambler had amassed a debt of £1,000. Ronnie took umbrage to the liberties he believed the man was taking, so dragged him behind an alley and took a sword to his mouth. He then pushed the blade further, which sliced open the sides of the man's face. The victim needed cosmetic surgery, but never revealed who committed the crime to police. Further punishments involved the use of a red-hot branding iron, and the craze, more so Ronnie, didn't draw the line at attacking their friends. After telling Ronnie that he might have put on some weight, a friend was also slashed in the face, and Ronnie also shot two acquaintances in the feet. These outbursts of violence from Ronnie also marked a period of financial decline for the twins. When Reggie briefly returned to prison after losing an appeal against extorting money from Swiss travel goods, Esmeralda's barn started to run into trouble. The double R's license was also revoked. Both were lucrative establishments, but with their businesses now failing, it wasn't long before the inland revenue sent them a tax demand which they couldn't pay so Esmeralda's barn had to close its doors. Despite their setbacks with the clubs and casinos of London's West End, they seemed to have no shortage of cash and were often keen to widen the scope of their business ventures, so Ronnie and later Reggie started to invest in the development of a new town in Enugu in Nigeria. Initially investing £25,000, this was later followed up by further financial contributions However, they saw no returns, apart from a few trips abroad for Ronnie, who believed he was creating a new utopia. Either way, the twins had plenty of other illegitimate ways to make money. One of these was something called long-firm fraud, or what is now known as consumer credit fraud. The firm would set up a distribution company that operated legitimately for a short period. They would make a good impression, paying their bills on time, and doing everything by the book, to make suppliers think that their business had a good line of credit. 
This would allow the firm to build relationships with a large number of suppliers before ordering a considerable amount of goods on credit. The business would then hold a clearance sale before vanishing. Once the ruse had been discovered, the culprits would have long since disappeared, leaving unsettled debts, furious creditors and authorities with no clue as to their whereabouts. It was reported that in 1964 the craze made around £100,000 from these scams alone, though this amount can't be verified. At their peak, it was said the craze were making somewhere in the region of £200,000, which was no small sum, as this was prior to decimalisation in the early 1970s. No one can put an exact figure on the amount of cash moving through the books, However, their operation most certainly had its expenses, along with the vast amounts of money they would pay on clothes, cars and trips overseas. With payments to family members of the firm who had been locked up, payments to associates and the bill from the inland revenue, perhaps the twins weren't as well off as some might suspect. In 1965, the Cray twins began to expand their business across the Atlantic Ocean, when they started working with the American Mafia. $55,000 in bonds were stolen from a bank in Canada, and as the funds couldn't be laundered in North America, they were brought to Europe. The twins sold the bonds, cementing their relationship with the Mafia, and things looked to be moving in the right direction for Reggie and Ronnie. From a young age, Ronnie had an obsession with the American gangsters in the 1920s, Looking to emulate the mob bosses he saw on screen, he would be sharply dressed in tailor-made suits and employed his own private barber. He was even nicknamed the Colonel by members of the firm, which further stoked the fires of his ego and played into the image he had of himself. Although their trip to America wasn't a huge financial success, it was for Ronnie. Rubbing shoulders with the perceived heroes of his youth gave him a sense of satisfaction and accomplishment. It wouldn't be long until there was a fly in the ointment, as the Crays were continuing to demand money from the other clubs and casinos in the West End of London. One haunt was called the Hideaway in Soho, and the owner reported the Crays to the police. Mad Teddy Smith, an associate of the twins, caused a significant amount of damage, and Reggie and Ronnie had demanded half of the club's profits, so were both arrested and taken into custody. Charged with demanding money with menace, the twins were incarcerated for 56 days before a trial began at the Old Bailey during February 1965. After a retrial, as the first jury couldn't reach a decision, the second trial was halted after it emerged that the owner of the hideaway, Hugh McCowan, had in fact been a police informant and the defence had dug up enough dirt on him to have the case thrown out. Before the ink was even dry on the court paperwork, the twins purchased the hideaway and changed the name to the El Morocco after throwing a party at the venue. The Crays and their solicitor were interviewed about the trial and what they would be doing next. How much does this trial cost you? It's cost us roughly £8,000. And how do you feel about that? I don't suppose anyone likes the idea of spending that money for no reason at all, you know. Does it leave you broke or how does it, it leave It doesn't you? leave us broke, but at the same time it's a lot of money to have to pay out when money's innocent, you know. A lot of people have got the impression from this trial that Clubland, London, is very tough. Do you think it is? You've run a couple of clubs. Well, in all clubs you get an occasional drunk, you know, and sometimes they have to be slung out, and that's why there's dormant there. But um, I suppose it's like Clubland all over the world, really. It's just the same as 
I don't suppose it can be that bad, because people won't go to them, really, would they? Ronald, what do you think about Clubland in London? Well, I think most clubs are very respectable, you know, and uh, I don't think there's any trouble at all in them, except occasionally. Can you tell me why, during the trial, you didn't give evidence? Well, we was advised by illegal people not to give evidence. Why was that? Well, the law of this country is well established. The onus is on the prosecution to prove its case. Uh, counsel for these uh, these two men and their in the third defendant were quite satisfied in their own mind, as I in my own humble way was as well, that the prosecution had not proved their case, and there was no obligation on these men to go and and and, and to make any answer to any of the allegations against them. What are you going to do now that it's all over? I like to have a bit of family life now. You know, I intend to get married in the near future. I did before this case, but it's put back over the case, and um. Get married as soon as possible, you know. Ronald, what are you going to do now? Well, I'd like to go abroad for a short while and uh, then I'd like to be left alone. On April 19, 1965, Reggie Cray was married to Frances Shea at St James's Church in Bethnal Green. She was a young woman that had been romantically involved with Reggie for a number of years. He had met her through Francis's brother Frank, who worked as an occasional driver for the craze. In one photo, the 21-year-old can be seen in a white wedding dress being kissed by Ronnie and Reggie on each cheek. Ronnie was the best man, and the wedding was a lavish affair, with celebrities attending, along with celebrated famous photographer David Bailey taking photos. The ceremony was a huge celebration, and after a honeymoon in Athens... Reggie had a chance to settle down and enjoy the money he had made. The same couldn't be said for Ronnie, as he became obsessed with the idea of becoming the kingpin of London's underworld. In an attempt to emulate a godfather figure, Ronnie would buy immaculate suits and flamboyant jewellery, and was well aware of the benefits of having friends in high places, but didn't quite realise the trouble that would bring. During July of the previous year, an article appeared in the pages of the Sunday Mirror which suggested that an unnamed lord was having a homosexual affair with a London gangster. The headline read, Peer and a Gangster, Yard Probe. Being gay was a criminal offence at the time and punishable by a prison term. The following week the Sunday Mirror suggested they had proof of the affair which was too explicit to print. The photo was of Ronnie Cray sat with Lord Boothby conservative politician. Another headline read, The Picture We Must Not Print. The craze had threatened the journalist that played a part in the article, and the threat of legal action was announced not only by Lord Boothby, but also bizarrely a solicitor for the Labour Party. Labour MP Tom Dryberg had also been wrapped up in the scandal, and the party were keen to protect his reputation before a looming general election. Ronnie Cray lived in Cedra Court, just under five miles north of Valence Road, and his neighbour Leslie Holt had introduced him to Lord Boothby. Although there had been rumours surrounding both Lord Boothby's and Tom Dryberg's sexual orientation, it was an open secret amongst their peers in Westminster, but had been kept out of the tabloids. Neither political party wanted the public to hear the news that one of their members was involved in a homosexual scandal, not least with a gangster, so the police were quietly asked to take no action and the information was buried. At the start of August 1964, 
In a letter sent to the Times newspaper, Lord Boothby denied all of the allegations against him, calling the claims a tissue of atrocious lies and suggested the person he'd met for a new business opportunity was a gentleman. Lord Boothby explained that he had turned the man's business proposal down, but Ronnie Cray's name was not mentioned. Lord Boothby would later receive £40,000 in compensation and a printed apology in the Daily Mirror. The editor was fired and used as a scapegoat by the man in charge of the Mirror Group, Cecil King. Up until his death, Ronnie was candid about his sexuality and vehemently denied that anything happened between him and Lord Boothby. Though this is likely to be true, the pair were often seen together in public and there has been more than a few accounts which suggest they at least attended the same late night adult parties. Throughout the twins' rise to notoriety, Ronnie had kept his homosexuality a secret. It wouldn't be until Reggie and Ronnie made a name for themselves in the West End that Ronnie openly spoke about it. He was no longer afraid to take men out for dinner or breaks in the country. Few people would have the nerve to voice a negative opinion about Ronnie's sexuality to his face, but George Cornell did and would ultimately regret it. This is the end of episode one. To hear more on the Cray twins' eventual arrest for murder, the court case and their life behind bars, please tune in next time. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. To help support They Walk Among Us, please consider donating at patreon.com forward slash theywalkamonguS, where you'll receive early access to ad-free episodes for just $3 a month. If you enjoyed the show, please also consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast provider. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast or follow us on Instagram and Facebook under They Walk Among Us podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.